Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest on this episode is Josh Schultz, current president of KingCast and previously co-founder of The Chess Group. Josh has partnered with Reg Zeller, a former podcast guest from episode 81 and KingCast founder, to acquire and streamline foundries across the country. But as Josh and I talk about in the episode, that is far from their only ambition. Josh and I talk about what has changed the most in the years since joining KingCast, how he approaches scaling organizations and teams, documenting processes, change management, and finding a complementary partner to work with. Josh is also a great friend and a person I deeply admire. He's incredibly intelligent, process-driven, and creative, and I always love talking with him. Please enjoy our conversation. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Lisa Forrest from Live Oak Bank. How should folks evaluating companies today for prospective acquisitions, how should they think about interest rate changes? Well, this is a topic that's top of mind for everybody, and it is something we're talking a lot about, and for good reason. Your rate of interest on your loan is your cost of capital, and it is going up. It is is more expensive to borrow, whether it is on a home loan or if it is in a business acquisition context. I think for us always, interest rate has not necessarily been the most important aspect of decision-making for our acquisition clients. It might feel like one of the most important things, and not that it's not important, but the big picture, like your return on invested capital, is really the more important big picture to be considering. If you're still going to be growing your company, if you're going to buy your company and grow it, there's aspects of your, your ultimate return on capital that are more importantly impacted by structure, equity, seller note structure, term, amortization. So there's lots of other aspects in your acquisition decision-making that really kind of play more into your overall rate of return than just the the interest rate. To learn more about Live Oak Search Fund Lending, you'll find Lisa and Heather on Live Oak Search Fund Landing page and find links to resources, FAQs, podcasts, and links to office hours. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Hood & Strong, Overly Risk Strategies, More Staffing, and Oakborn Advisors for supporting the show. Now to the episode. So you mentioned kind of off microphone that a lot of stuff has changed in KaneCast this year. What are kind of the top two or three things that you feel have changed the most uh, in the last 10 months of this year? I would say that the off the bat, knowing what we're doing and the impact that it's having is is huge. When, when I got there, to be frank, there were really, not really financials. We didn't know production numbers. We didn't know, we had an idea who the top customers were, but we didn't know exactly how big or small or how they were changing. There was just a massive amount of gut feel off the cuff kind of work, which is par for the course for a foundry, to be honest. That, that is one of the potential upsides is that you can run it with a little more of objective approach. But so yeah, we had to start tracking what the plants were producing every day, what machine was doing it, who was doing it, understanding what customer it was for, starting to understand how long it took to do things. We were pricing product that had no idea how long it took to make it, which meant that our sales 
were highly variable and we lost money some months. We made money some months. We thought we were making money every month and I just didn't feel right about, you know, basically guessing. And when we started implementing some of these tracking, you know, this key really basic tracking things, we started realizing we weren't making money every month. And so I think the first big thing was, you know, what are we doing day to day? What are we doing week to week? What what do the numbers across the board look like? And then start to create a kind of a cadence of those getting released, collected, analyzed, released for everybody to make better decisions on. And so, you know, what we did, we, we tracked why we wanted better, higher quality decisions from every single employee across the board. And so that was getting them feedback. Do you feel like there's an order of operations to making changes or starting to track certain things before tracking the next thing? As far as sequential, like thing to thing, I, I think there is an order of operations, but it's not a technical one. It's simply what's going to have the biggest impact. That's a question, especially in the beginning, we asked a lot. What's the one thing we're going to do that's going to have the largest impact on the organization? To this day, I do that weekly. I write down every week all, all the sections of the organization and I write what's the one biggest thing that I can do that's going to have an impact on RDS, on Canecast, on Ermac specifically, on our finance function. So when we were doing tracking numbers, what was the biggest thing that was going to have an impact? Mold counts. That was going to give us an insight into sales. It was going to help us with productivity and efficiency. We were going to be able to know a lot of information across the board just by knowing how many molds we were making every single day. And so that I think that was the biggest one that we probably spent the most time on. And then from there, it goes out. How are we pricing these molds? And how are we, you know, using labor to produce these molds? And which machines are better at producing molds? And, you know, but it all stemmed from, for us, that mold count. And I think if you look at every organization, there's one or two key drivers. So I, I have a, the team mocks me out, but I always say, I hate sales. Don't tell me sales. And so every month I get a report that says, I know Josh doesn't care, but here's the sales numbers for each division. But I don't care about sales because it's really a component of other things that matter far more. And in our case, it is pricing and it is mold count. If we can focus on those, those things that we can actually touch, sales will take care of itself. Sales might hide lower mold counts because such things are being priced higher inflation and vice versa. We might have crazy mold counts be pricing wrong, but it's being hidden because of the crazy mold counts. So it's good to figure out what are the five to six key fundamental drivers of your entire business? And, and we have one lead, we, you know, gen method, we've got the actual mold count, we've got the pricing, we've got the cost of labor and the cost of aluminum. And beyond that, all the rest of it could be pulled all into one, you know, thing at the end. But those are the key drivers for our business. So our focus for tracking, for understanding, for making decisions started around labor metal production, which is basically mold counts and then pricing. So kind of walking through those two, pricing and then mold counts, how did you go about understanding both? Because there's, with, of course, with pricing, you want to understand what the market is, how, how, how are these typically charged, what can you charge, and then mold counts, there's you know, a thousand ways to understand that process. So how did you go through kind of step-by-step understanding each component? Mold counts... We, we just created a quick tracker at the end. I didn't know much about it at the time. And so we we use Airtable for that, to be honest. We have a form that every molder fills out. Put, what did you make today? Who was it for? Most of the guys know this. They've been making these parts for 10, 20, 30 years. That gets assembled in Airtable. And then all this processing happens and dashboarding and all that. But it's basically just their numbers and what machine they made it on. 
once we got an understanding of that, we got a baseline and then we could tell if we were going up or down and we knew roughly what we should be doing. We knew which plants were doing more or less than other plants, right? All of these other decisions. And you then take, we took a guy from Ermac and brought him down to Superior and said, okay, at Ermac, they do twice as much as you on the same machine. We're going to bring him down and show you how, because he definitely doesn't work harder. He doesn't leave more tired than you. He's just working smarter. So we're going to bring him down. We started to cross pollinate those ideas, which was huge. We basically had free free ideas in our plant that we weren't using. And so again, the tracking is what clued us into that. The quoting was a little different. The quoting is based on how long it takes you to make the part and then the inputs into the part. But with a foundry, it gets a little more complex because there's multiple systems all with their own inputs and outputs that are working together in a kind of a nonlinear method. So you've got a sand system, a metal system, a labor system, all going on at the same time. So you have a metal system where metal is being poured in, it's being charged or you know basically melted, it's being cleaned, it's just being available to pour. Meanwhile, you've got a sand system, which is allowing us to build all these molds. Then you've got the labor system, which is kind of combining the outputs of those two into castings. And each system has cues and buffers. And so looking at the whole thing, it was kind of complex. And so we had to come up with a way and we created a number of rules of thumb so that somebody, not a foundry expert who could look at it and kind of intuit all this stuff could quote this. And that that goes back to building something that was scalable. We, we did not want to have to have foundry experts to do all of our quoting as we grow to 100 million, because that means we're going to need 15, you know, 20, you know, foundry experts, and that's going to be very hard to find in the US. And so we worked with, with a guy and uh, myself and uh, some of the old quoting stuff, Reg, Reg brought his engineering hat in and we came up with a method where basically so, there's a number of inputs, but we have somebody in Mexico who has no foundry experience who's able to quote 95% of our parts accurately first try. And so we built that tool for them. So they use that tool and between the quoting and the mold counts, we were then able to lock in on basically sales. And the, the key with molds is like you said, there's market pricing and all that. We honestly did not pay attention to it. Our thought was, if we don't make money, there's no point making it. We don't need all the business. We only need the business that will allow us to make money. Because without that, we can't invest in the people and in the plant, and we end up going into a death spiral. So we have lost a lot of business. Not that we already had, but we just lost like new business coming in that we didn't get because we were overpriced. I'd say half of that has ended up coming back around and they go with us because whoever they went with had issues, problems, something was unanticipated. We try to do it right the first time and think about all the contingencies, all the extra costs that might come in, make sure it's baked in so there's no surprises. So a little costlier, but I believe the process is a little higher quality and a little less volatile for the customers that are willing to go with us the first try. Do you believe there's a third factor that's influencing sales, kind of what you had just alluded to, that your processes and efficiency and quality is creating this competitive advantage that also contributes to sales beyond just pricing and a part count? I would love to say yes, but I, I don't think at this time that's the case. I'm looking here. I wrote this to my leadership team. So we can talk about this later, but we're really big on developing some, some leadership thinking right now. We have three keys that we're trying to do. This is kind of our vision internally. We want to rebuild manufacturing in the US. We want high paying jobs for high performers. And we want a company worth working for. And so this got into, you know, how do we get high paying jobs? We have to charge more. And how do you charge more? And this gets to what you said. This is what I think allows us to be able to charge more. But I don't think we're here. If you're faster than everybody else, 
You can do things with less time. You're cheap. You're at. You're cheaper. But you also get more business because your lead times aren't as long. So you can charge more. If you control your costs, you end up with higher margins. And that allows you to be able to do things like price it lower, but still get higher margins. So you technically you cost more. You have better service than anybody else. You get back to people right away. I think that people enjoy that, and you can charge more. And if you make a quality part that doesn't keep getting returned, you can charge more. We currently have quality issues at two of our plants. Our service is a hell of a lot better than it was a year ago, but we still have so much to improve. So I think that while what you said is possible in our industry and it's what we're striving for, I don't think we have service so good or quality so good that people are coming to us. But we are definitely building for that competitive advantage to be able to be the lowest lead time, best serviced, able to make it at a a competitive price, but also a higher margin for us to invest back into automation and making it even better and better. I think the service one's kind of interesting. Like, what's the most challenging piece for improving service that you've encountered so far? Yeah, it's it's getting back to customers in their emails. And so the culture that I came from that we built at a previous company, Chess Group, was, you know, when you email somebody or you call somebody and you don't know if they got the message or not, and you get a little bit of an anxiety. It's like, did they get it? Did they read it? And then after two days, you're like, should I remind them? Or maybe they saw them. You don't know, right? Well, Every time your customer emails you, they're going through that. They have a problem, though. They're saying, I don't know when this ships. I don't know if this is correct. And every time, every minute you don't answer them, the anxiety builds. But production people and engineers love to say, well, I've been working on it the whole time. Hey, you know that. They don't know that. So I'm, they can't put themselves in those shoes and imagine the anxiety. So I'm very big on, let's just get back to them with something. Just say, I got this. I'm working on it. Give me three days. That diffuses the anxiety. People feel better about doing business with you, even though that answer is still going to come in three days, you diffuse that. And so what we did is we pulled on a team member to basically do nothing but respond to emails. And they were doing that and it helped right away. Oh, people were like, oh, you're finally getting back to us. But the answers were still taking a long time because we needed experts. And so what we've been doing is writing a guide to answering customer emails that is two parts. It is part technique so we got things like anchoring and all the stuff. I just shared some anchoring in my last newsletter. That's almost directly from our customer service playbook. And then we've got things like when a customer re- has a question about molding or cores, how do you answer those? And we have an engineer who actually has been listing those out. And so we have this playbook that we're growing to help us properly respond to people. Because what we learned was getting back to them right away was step one, but step two is getting them to answer faster. And because of the the structure of Kanecast, we don't have a ton of people that are just sitting around at computers all day, just looking to answer technical questions. Almost every technical person is involved in production at this, at this point. It seems like a big theme for a lot of the subjects we've talked about just broadly over the years are around making previously private information more public and transparent and available to as much of the company as possible. How much do you think that impacts every one of these processes that you've had so far? I imagine a, a ton, like even just the the concept of being able to take somebody who has no casting experience and they can quote everything 95% accurately on the first try. Like that, that seems to me like a communication and just internal data piece that you've improved. Like how... How does that internal data, like just becoming more public, influence the rest of your company? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm biased because I think it's incredibly important. So I'm going to preach it like it's it's huge. But in reality, I don't think everybody would see it that way. We deal with 
an industry, you know, Reg says it all the time, we deal with an industry that has just been beat to hell for the last few decades. And so you've got people that have been losing their business, losing their customers, losing their talent for literally decades. And so they're protecting every last bit they can. At the same time, what we're actually seeing is a shift in reshoring. We're seeing a shift in resourcing back in North America. We're seeing supply chain and manufacturing tech start to become very much invested in from a PE side, a VC side, and then just a private side. And so we feel like we're at the beginning of a new trend that we're going to ride and we're excited about it. But, you know, the guys in their 60s that have been doing this their whole life and have been just just beaten up don't feel that way. And so you've got this dichotomy where we are like, we're going to make all this information available. We're going to grow the heck out of this. And they're like, I'm not sharing anything I don't have to share. So it depends on who you ask, how well and helpful it is. But my view is that nobody should be needed to run the business. And and I can honestly say today, if I was not there, nothing would change. Everything would continue to go. They've got my strategic plan. They've got all the tools I want to build. They've got even the tech that I plan to use to do it. They've got the structures, the ideas. It's all listed publicly to continue executing on. All the cadences that I have and the things that I do are listed publicly. Same thing with my director of ops. Our month on close process is posted. So technically, most of the people in our organization could leave and other people could very easily come fill fill in. There's a couple that can't. And so, you know, we just had this talk where, hey, listen, you think you have job security because we need you to do this process. The way I view it is, you're a huge piece of risk in the company. And so I'd rather get rid of you before you become even riskier and deal with the fallout and fill in. And so there's three people that are in that position where it's like, I know you think that we need you, but because of that, you, I actually see you as a, one of the riskiest parts of the org. Again, I'd rather get rid of you, deal with no production on that machine for the next two months, deal with the fallout, but then never have it again versus you getting more and more entrenched in that position. And so that is something that we have shared in leadership and in management. And by the end of the year, it'll be shared across the entire organization is if this is the way. So we created a, a, a like a list. Here's how to get promoted. We're trying to do a lot of things more objectively because we have a very varied labor force that, you know, this isn't fair and that isn't fair. And so we're getting really objective. And so we wrote a list. Here's how to get promoted. And one of the things is you should be able to be sick for three to five days and nothing really changes. People can fill in. They have access to all everything you need to know. And that's very obvious, right? If, if, if you leave and all of a sudden it's like, well, how do we order sand? Where do we go for this? And who's the guy that brings this in on Thursdays? And oh, I don't even know his number. Oh, they usually just text him privately. And it's like, okay, horrible, horrible system. So you just you just showed me that you're a really risky individual and we're going to lower your responsibility. You're not going to get promoted. And if you don't fix it soon, you're not going to be part of the team. There's a CEO I, w- I was listening to who talked about for those folks who want who are ambitious and managers and want to get promoted and move up in their in that company. One thing he said was they need to have their replacement ready. Like their their job needs to be replaceable. Like they need to be able to leave and because they if they need if they want to get promoted, somebody else has to step in and replace them. And the more they can make their job replaceable, make themselves replaceable, the easier it was to promote them, which is feels kind of counterintuitive to some degree. No, it's funny to say that. I I was doing it informally. Reg gave me a structure, a framework that they used at GE that I like, and we've been implementing that. So basically, we look at any position, every position, and say, okay, who's the next two best replacements? What is their knowledge gap between what they know now and what they need to know? And then what is the six-month plan to get them halfway there and the 12-month plan to get them all the way there? And so now you've got your training program for that person, and you have training programs for everybody. 
And so we've been doing that, starting with the riskiest and working out, you know, our roto. Who's the best person to do roto if if this guy isn't there? What don't they know? Here's the six month, here's the 12 month. Now we keep checking back to make sure that that's progressing. How do you get somebody who has all of that deep domain expertise to willingly share? You mentioned a you know, occasional personality you run into is someone who doesn't want to share anything that, that they don't have to. How do you get somebody like that to share and document some of their 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 knowledge? I, I don't have a 100% answer on that. I've got a partial answer. What's been working so far is, for the majority of people is sharing the larger vision. Here's what we're trying to build. When they just see their piece, they don't want to lose their piece. But when they see a much bigger piece that they aren't exactly a part of yet, then they want to be part of that and they know they have to leave what they're doing behind. And so we've been sharing what Canecast is becoming. And there's a lot of it we haven't talked publicly about, but we've got three companies we have started inside of the Canecast family. And there, there will be a total of 10 over the next three years that are not foundries. And so these are manufacturing support companies that we are building for ourselves. And then we will release out into the public, which will be really exciting. But we're building them specifically to be able to service manufacturing companies. Can you dive into those a little bit? Like what's the, what's the broader vision there? With multiple companies that aren't foundries. Yep. So our goal is to rebuild manufacturing. The foundries are just the start. It's the foray into it. That means that not only casting, but at some level, machining could be plastic injection molding. We're not sure. We haven't gotten that far into what the next vertical will be. We still have plenty of fair game in the, in the foundry space. At the same time, each of these are going to need focus on manufacturing specific types of companies. So for example, bookkeeping. Bookkeeping is bookkeeping. You can hire a bunch of bookkeepers, but there's also an, a layer of things that are specific to manufacturing that is very different from HVAC, that is very, or I'm sorry, that is very different from home services, that is very different from uh, CPG. And so we are building that specialized bookkeeping service for us to help us with really understanding labor as it ties to production, really understanding working capital absorption, understanding CapEx and repair and how that goes into your fixed assets, those kind of special key pieces. As we build that muscle, so we've already got it to where we have our set dashboards. We can drill in on things. We can see history by just mousing over certain numbers. We have certain alerts that pop up for the plant managers. We also have it so that we can get that data from Zero, QuickBooks, Acumatica, and Sage. We've got four different platforms already built with systems codified to get the data from that into our kind of cool system. The goal would be to be able to do it from any system that any manufacturer is using, give them the same reports we're using, but obviously somewhat a little taller to them. And then we do their bookkeeping, plus give them, you know, all the interesting stuff that we're building from this, you know, tech side. We're doing media, we're doing customer service, we're building our customer service arm. So this playbook I told you about, there's two parts, right? Foundry part is really specific to us. We could help other foundries with that, but we have this other part of how to answer customers, how to build relationships, even with bad news. And every time we talk about something, it goes into that playbook that is now eight, nine pages long to where we're, we have call scripts in there for all different types of scenarios, everything from shipping dates that are delayed to pricing that was off to bad parts. We'll be able to do call centering for specifically for manufacturers that get these same types of calls. And so our goal is to help the mom and pop shops and manufacturers that are stagnant, that are possibly declining, that need just some help to beef up things like service and quality and bookkeeping and to understand their books. And so we, were gonna, we wanna basically API out our services to those small mid-volume manufacturing services. So we're building those muscles now 
Uh, internally, they're all they're all under separate LLCs already. Some of them have beta clients in them. Most of them don't. I think only two of them have beta clients in them. And so, yeah, we're building kind of this entire support network that will be not only for us, but for many manufacturers and distributors across the U.S. So this is new. We haven't talked about this before. What what are some business models or companies out there that have inspired this idea of making your different functions their own solo companies? I would say Amazon probably. So Amazon has the AWS model. I know you're really into data, so you know this probably better than I do, but they basically built something to scratch their own itch, realized it was pretty good, and then released it out. And that helps fund a very CapEx-heavy business which is logistics. You got trucks, you got warehouses. And so we run a CapEx heavy business and we want to be able to build these muscles that help us, but then also be able to API them out to others in a, in a low CapEx, you know, basically highly variable margin that we can just funnel that back over to our CapEx. That'll allow us to do things as we gain momentum that nobody else will do. And I think we're already starting to see that compound where we've got funds flowing in from these cash businesses that feed automation investments. And we're looking at two machines right now, maybe up in Pennsylvania, that are just incredible. We're going to be able to do that at a faster rate than I think anybody else. And because we're building them now, it'll be hard to, I think it'll be hard to catch up in the foundry space. And so we'll just keep knocking over bigger and bigger dominoes as we kind of compound this side cash machine that funnels our CapEx production machine. Yeah, we talked about competitive advantage earlier. This feels like a way to increase that even further. If you have all the be- if you have all the best functions of a foundry in house that you that are under your control, and you're not you're not if you have like if you had a good vendor that wasn't your company was some other third party, and you lose that vendor, you know that, that's going to hamper your own performance. But now that you can control it and keep it in house, you can grow it, but also with less risk because now you don't need to worry about losing that relationship or getting priced out or some other some other thing happening. Absolutely. And I think there's two things to that that make it important for our industry. One is the specificity needed, not needed, but that's nice to have for manufacturing because it's, just, it's a different beast than other types of businesses. And so just putting a general solution at it isn't always the best or as helpful as it could be. The second thing is, and I would have disagreed with you on this 12 months ago, but the foundry space is on life support in the US. There's a number of vendors that barely, like one or two people are there, you know, their heyday was in the 80s and it's hard to get product out. And these products are essential for foundry. So there's a there's a large vendor risk out there. And so we are constantly, I, even today, I was working on one section of this, trying to pull in-house our own experts so that we can do, if needed, everything in-house and then spin it up, uh, spin up our own kind of foundry supply. Because yeah, it's, it's, I would have said, hey, outsource everything that's not key to production. But the foundry space is an interesting space in the US where it's just, it's on life support. And there's a lot of risk where, you know, in another business, as long as you can buy a screwdriver, you're good. Or as long as you can get some PVC piping, you're good. Not so in the foundry space. There are things that nobody else uses that we use. And there's only a couple of companies left that make them. And those companies, their customers are all going out of business. That's why we're buying them. And so it's it's really a, a shrinking life support space. We, we want to make sure we are constantly building up our own internal capabilities, knowledge, so that we can be not only able to pull those resources, but also be the best at it in the country. You've mentioned before that foundries are really hard to expand because there's a ton of CapEx that goes to uh, building a new building, adding machinery and whatnot. So 
it feels like you're acquiring partly as just you just need more capacity and you need to acquire businesses to fill that capacity and it's an efficient way versus building a you know a new building for for example do you feel like the competitive advantage you're building with expertise so far but also if you have these other companies that are that have foundry vendors or customers i imagine that's an easy way to kind of start those conversations with other foundries to go acquire them too i think we have kind of this cool exponential thing starting to happen so when i first came on we had one well-run foundry and we had two recent acquisitions that had basically just been acquired and were as they were when they were acquired. We now have three, soon to be four, pretty well-running foundries, and we're about to buy a fifth. And so what happens now is when we learn one new thing, we can apply it in four different areas, and it helps level everybody up. Where before we learned something, and it would just help one plant, right? And so you get a 5% boost. But now we're getting that boost across all the foundries. So every one new fact that we learn gets spread out. And so it, it becomes, again, kind of like you said, this compounding snowball where every new foundry, part of our thing before we change anything or even tell them how we do things, we, we did this in February, we're going to be doing it again later this year, is we do a best practice extraction. We go in, how are you doing things? Why are you doing them this way? We'll compare to ours, and then we'll cross-pollinate that idea to all the other ones if it gives us a hard uh, return on, on capital invested. Do you think there's a correct pacing to change you mentioned like taking notes and having some new like top of mind thing that you want to improve to have the highest return that week do you think there's a a pace of change that a a company can handle that is quick enough that it's aggressive and kind of keeps you on your heels without kind of breaking things too fast i think there is i don't know what it is though we are definitely past ours I know like you're, we're dealing with people that have run the same type of thing for literally 20 years, right? So 20 years, the same rough sales level, just the same thing day in and day out. And now all of a sudden uh, we're doing 4X, which means things have to change. And you know, their first thing to say is, well, we've always done it this way. Right, I understand that, but we are no longer doing 2 million a year. This plant's now doing 10 a year as of you know January. So we need to do things a little differently or the whole everything will break down or, or you'll be here till 4 a.m. every day. So yeah, there's definitely a, a level of change that is too much. We knew this was going to be too much. We, 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 I, so we wrote a memo I wrote out to everybody in January that said, okay, 2022 is just the operational year. We're going to rebuild the whole ops. And rather than extend this for three to five years and all of us be tortured with just constant change and all this stuff, we're going to just, we're going to front load it all. We're going to get it out of the way. And then we're going to be able to slowly just build our machine being the acquisitions from 2023 on. And so we've gotten pretty close to changing everything and anything over the last nine months so far. And by the end of this year, you know, Kanecast will be a completely different company, no matter what which, which section you look at. When you talked about getting folks to share their industry expertise and knowledge, you talked about kind of setting a vision. I imagine setting a vision helps folks on your team know that, okay, this is going to be painful as we change all these different processes, but there's not only an end in sight, but there's a broader vision that we have. Is like, How helpful is that? And then what are some other tactics to help folks manage their, their own internal change, both in their own role, but also like broadly as a company? Yeah. You know, it's funny when we first, when I first went around in December and talked to everybody, here's what we're going to build. Then it was all just on paper. And I a lot, I just, nobody interacted, nobody engaged, nobody cared. 
literally every plant, nobody cared. And so, okay. So I started building it myself, you know, just as I started writing documentation, I started building the LLCs, I started creating the, the tech we needed. I started calling partners. That was one of our vision was to have these partners across the board that handled stuff for us. Those partners started coming to the plants. The plants started seeing new things pop up in their plants, new ways of communication. They started getting new information they never had before that was never shared. We implemented an incentive program for every single worker in the entire company. We implemented a 401k program. So then I went back around, hey, we're still building this vision. All of a sudden people are like, oh, we're really building this vision, right? Like they're like, that's that's gonna be a real thing. I wanna be part of it. So I think there was sharing the vision, but I also think that there was the initial execution that took it from, okay, yeah, whatever. Thank you, corporate guy, for showing me your piece of paper to, oh, we're taking off like a rocket and now I want to be part of it. And so we went from, again, nobody talking to us to we had a, a plant manager position that we had open up who put the job applications out there. We had employees that found it and applied. And so now they're like, we want to be part of it as much as possible. And so to manage that, I come from a background where I always wanted more. Uh, I was in finance. And I, I would have done anything. I would have worked any amount of hours and nobody would give me the, the chance. I didn't have the right pedigree or whatever. And nobody would give me a chance. And I just wish they would have told me like, what do you have to do? And so like thinking back to that, I said, okay. And I talked to this guy. I said, okay, you can't be plant manager. You do not have the skills. However, I will teach you the skills over the next 12 months. And I guarantee you more leadership positions will be available because we are growing like a rocket. And so by the time it comes around, you will be ready. I promise you, I will work with you. And so that that was the start of the leadership development program, which is what are all the things we want people to do? How are the ways we want them to think? What are the frameworks we want them to use when encountering problems and culture issues and making decisions and buying equipment? We're going to package all that into a program. We're going to all run through it together so that we're all thinking along the same path and then we can have true plant autonomy. And so I think managing that change, sharing the vision, yeah, executing on it so that they know it's real, and then giving them a path to be part of it. And people want different levels of part of it. Some of them want to be plan managers. Some of them just want to be left alone and want the incentive program. And some people want to be right up there grabbing cash flow with you as part of like a massive like leadership incentive program. I'm okay with any and all of them. You tell me what level you want. I'll find a way to get you engaged or up to speed so that you can get engaged. And I, so I think that the fact that nobody has been held back, everybody says that there's more now, has made the extreme pace of change bearable. But again, it's only for a time. I think if we kept going at this pace, we probably would break down about summer of next year. I can see the fatigue on some faces. They're still excited, but there's fatigue on faces. There's like, all right, I, I need a break. I'm, I'm getting burnt out. And so I think we've got a massive HR payroll onboarding training platform we're, we're implementing that'll be done one one the erp should be done around the same time what else we've been doing the acquisition will be done two days before that like all the stuff will finally hit finish at at one one literally almost on one one 2023 and then from there on on it'll be acquisition templates playbooks you know scale that way yeah i, I imagine the pace of change is probably not going to slow down, it probably just changes where it, where the changes happen. Like right now, it seems like it's process change, but then eventually it's going to be just organizational change. New organizations are coming in, you have to adjust them. So like, how do you view like, not the rate of change changing, but I feel like I'm saying change a lot. Like, how do you view like what types of things will be changing through the rest of this year and then going into next year? Like, where do you think that gets reallocated? Yeah, you know, the only, I don't know until I go through it. The only thing I can think is, 
the changes happening now are to make it easier to run the businesses for everybody. It's easier for the molders to run their departments, easier for the managers to run their divisions, easier for uh, Eric, the operations guy, to run all the businesses. We, we keep saying we're taking it from running you know, multiple businesses multiple ways to running one business multiple times. And so that's kind of what we're doing is we're, we're systematizing and operationalizing all the foundries so that they all run the same way with the same platform, with the same cadence, with the same information share. And it makes it much easier. It takes, so like we're allocating, let's just say 10 to 15 hours per plant a week. We're going to get that down to two to three hours per week per plant. So you'll be able to do more plants with less effort. So that that's what's changing now. Like you said, process. What's going to change is like you, I think you put it organizational change, acquisition, integrations. That is different because you can't, can't really speed that up or, I mean, you can make it a little more efficient. Like we said, we have playbooks. What used to take three months to figure out, we now know day one that we need to order, you know, these 30 things and get them because they're part of our system. So we've sped it up a little bit, but that kind of change, I think, can only go so fast, depending on how many people you have to do integrations, which at this point, we don't have many. We're mostly a production shop. So I, I think that one is as a much more realizable cap than the process change that we're doing now. Where do you feel like in the organizational change, once you start adding companies, where, where do you think the strain is going to be felt? At the top with me, I think eventually that's that's a little break for us. We'll need to get, depending on how fast we do acquisitions, we'll need to actually start to build an acquisition team. Right now, I do them. Eric does them. We do them together. We have it split a certain way. But with running the businesses and doing integrations, like we're basically an M&A integration team on top of a, you know, and a change management culture team on top of the actual leadership team for the current foundries. Right now, it's working well because we're creating that playbook and, you know, it. There's probably nobody more excited about this business than me and Eric and Reg. So Eric and I will sit every night and just talk until, you know, 1 or 2 a.m. Reg and I will talk often until 2 a.m. Just hashing out all these details and creating this playbook. Once we have it, I think it'll be easier to pull somebody in to say, okay, here's the playbook. Here's the vendors. Here's the processes you need to check. Here's the speeds they should be done at. Find all the gaps. And that's your to-do list for the next three months. But it's nice being kind of the more strategic thinker in the middle of it, able to play with that process, keep it as putty right now, and be able to tweak it a lot and and develop that playbook because a different mind is needed to develop it than to execute it. And so for now, I think the strain will just have to be there. It's it's just, I like to be in the middle of messy processes and figure them out. That's the fun part for me. So I, I don't mind being in the middle of it and a little stressed out. But yeah, eventually we'll have a really dialed in playbook that we can just pass off. Yeah, I know you work incredibly hard. How do you go about learning a, a new topic? Do you have, obviously you take notes and have a journal or organize things on you know Airtable or some other note-taking format. How do you go about learning new things? And then how do you systematize that learning? We'll talk about the foundry specifically because that's a, that's a, a unique process to my personal learning. With the foundries, so I came in, I don't know anything. I know what a casting is. I sold castings, like I told you. I had visited foundries in China and in Mexico and in the US, but I had never actually been part of the production process. And there's a lot of science there. So there's there's some chemistry, there's some physics, you know, there's just a lot of technical information that tweaks these things in crazy ways. Right? Yeah, too much water and it changes how 
gas can get out. So it changes the porosity and holes in the metal, which changes how solid they are. And you can tweak sand by adding chemicals or removing chemicals. And, and so for me, a lot of it was writing down everything I heard that had a cause and effect. So cause and effect was the big thing that I, I honed in on. You know, if we, if we have uh, sand with grains that are too big and they're overcoated with clay, we're going to have low permeability. We're going to have an issue. What does that mean? I would just write too much clay, low permeability, right? And so I go back and I have all these cause and effects and I would just start looking into them. There's a lot of technical research out there that you can get into that gets over this. I then realized that I it was taking me too long to get to realization. So then I started reaching out to what I called experts. I started developing these relationships, mostly started with Reg. Reg, who knows a lot about sand? Who knows a lot about, you know, the the sand mixture? And, and he'd say, oh, you know, you got to get a hold of this guy. And, and so I started developing relationships, having calls. When I would visit the plants, I would find them, go have lunch with them. And so I've got kind of this board of experts now that I can go to all the time. I've had a lot of them into the plants to meet the workers. They help out. We pay them a, a consulting fee. And so we that's how I've learned a lot is, is them explaining it. I, I've got a, a sheet here actually from a while ago where talking about all that sand stuff, this was the sheet that I had developed kind of in all my notes on it. What do all these things mean? How do they go? So once I have the the general idea, I'm a top-down kind of person. I can't understand something if I don't get the big picture. So Christian gives me the big picture. And then I go look up every single technical word, right? And I fill in all the gaps. And then my final process uh, for this, and it's kind of like um, the Feynman technique is, but I basically write it in an easily understandable way, where if I forget it later, I can reread it or somebody in our foundry can use it and read it. And so we've got what we call an industry knowledge base, which is stuff that is not specific to our foundries. It is just general, here's how sand works. Here's how you should um, degas metal. Here's what's happening when you degas. Here's why it's important, whatever. And so as I learn, I've been almost writing a book on the foundry process, one paragraph at a time. And so I've got a bunch of stuff on my desktop here that over the weekend I'll go through and read and process. I'll update notes and fill in. I'll add a chart or two. Um, but that's been my process is basically get the big picture from an expert, look all up, look up the details on my own, and then turn that into a kind of a how-to or an explanation guide for others to use. Is that just a giant Word doc that somebody can go control F on any topic and uh, nope. go find it? It's it's a space in our confluence. So in confluence, we've got our operational space, our leadership space. We have a knowledge base, which is problems people hit and then how they were fixed. And then there's a, like I just said, industry knowledge space, which is all the how all this stuff works. Gotcha, gotcha. We, we talked before recording about your SMB Ops show and the podcast and how how I've personally used Think Like an Owner to go reach out to other people and build relationships with them. It sounds like that's something that you'll have the potential to do as well. You mentioned media kind of being one of those companies that might be part of the KingCast universe of companies. Do you view media partially as a kind of building that board of experts function for you? We see media with, with two main purposes. One is like you said, sharing out who we are so that we can build relationships with experts. So since since even that's the small amount that we've done between Reg and I, stuff we're on, stuff we've hosted, we've done some live stuff down here, we have met people that do automated sand uh, creation, right? 3D printing sands, basically. Like just so many neat vendors that could give us capabilities that could help us get new customers that we didn't know about. And so it kind of creates this awareness of what we're doing. And people say, oh, that's cool. I bet you they would like what I'm doing. Or that's the kind of organization I want to connect with, right? 
we built kind of the symbiotic relationship. And then the second thing is sharing that vision out there and having people go, that's the company I want to be part of. I wanted to get into manufacturing and that's what I want to do. And we've had, we've had people actually come apply and become part of our team from hearing us talk about what we're trying to build. We've got about three of them in the organization right now. We've got one probably that will be coming out in the next year. And it's just exciting to, we think it's just starting to put that message out there more and more to create just this inbound interest of really strategic, interesting people that want to build something really cool. Yeah, it seems like you've found a really good partner with Reg and the a, a universe that's big enough for you to you know, try a whole bunch of different things and build the processes that you enjoy doing. What advice do you have for finding a good partner? Like for someone like you looking to find a cane cast type role, like what made this intriguing to you and how do you think through finding a good partner for you? Yeah, that's a hard question. Yeah, I, I had I got asked this question inside of a private community and I actually put a lot of thought into it and listed out all the the sections and I can't remember most of them now. But but I, I think the key is finding somebody like working with. So from my experience in the past, building a business with my father, I know what I'm really good at and I know where I need someone to kick down the door. All right. And so I wanted, I needed to find somebody that would do that, fulfill the same role that my dad did, which I called the bull in a China shop role. If they're there every day, they're going to probably tank the business. But if they're there once in a while, they're going to be the bull in the China shop. They're going to break everything so that you have to rebuild it in, in, in a good way. They'll just rethink and just break down all the kind of weird stuff that you've built up in the meantime. And so that's Reg, right? If Reg was there every day, it probably wouldn't go as well as it goes when he comes in and he questions seven things that we're doing, right? And he's like, why are you doing this and this? And it's like, you know, I actually don't know. I He zooms out further than I would. He zooms back further. He goes forward further. And so I saw that right away in Reg. He's, he's very aggressive. He's very in your face when it comes to the business stuff. He's the nicest guy. But I saw right away when I hung out with him, this is the personality that I this is like my dad, basically. I, this, is the, this is the piece that I need to be more successful. And I think vice versa, because he's volatile, he needed somebody who was a little more consistent. And I think we both fit the missing piece pretty well. And we get along. We have a great time. But at the same time, we each fulfill a role that I don't want to be. He doesn't want to do mine. And uh, we, we just have a good time doing it. And for whatever reason, there's a lot of trust, which is huge. How do you think through the organization that you'd be a part of? There's there's one thing to you know, analyze who you're going to be working with, but also understanding the role and organization and potential of that. How do you think through what you could do within Camecast? I think that I can do a lot more now than I thought I could do when I joined. I thought we were just going to be building a couple of foundries when I joined. So being inside of it, you know, my mind is just constantly cranking on stuff. But what's been good is Reg hasn't been, no, he's been excited, just as excited as me, which I think is cool. So there's a lot of people you partner with and, oh, slow down, or that will come in due time. Or, you know, yeah, we can, maybe we can do that in a few years. Other than extremes, you know, it's pretty much just been, yeah, that's a really good idea. We can do this. We've got this. We can share this resource and we can outsource it here. And yeah, we can, we can probably get that going in three weeks. And we do, right? And there's like, there's, there's no one to put the brakes on for no reason. We do red team ideas. We've shut down a number of ideas that we just talked it out for five days in a row. And at the end, we weren't as excited about it. That's kind of our test. If we talk about it over and over and we get less excited, we, we trash it. 
And so we were going to move into this one space the fall of last year. I'm sorry, winter of this year. And we just got less excited the more we talked about it. And then we just said, well, we're going to table this. It's happened a few times. And so, but if we end up more excited after hashing out all the details of what it might look like and what realistically who we could pull in and uh, then, yeah, it's a go. We just go, we execute. And I think the continual execution is really what's exciting. So the more you execute, the bigger you realize you can go. Like I said, we know we did, we did like, I don't even know, six, seven million the year before I got there. We'll probably close this year at 16 to 19 million, somewhere in there. And we're projected next year based on acquisitions and growth to do, I don't know, 30 to 40. And we've got, that's not even counting the service businesses that we're building that are, are all small, but yeah, it's just exciting when you iterate every week on ideas instead of every month or every year, you can grow. It's just incredible how fast you can grow and how much fun it is too. Yeah, there seems to be kind of an entrepreneurial impatience that you work really well with or need to have in your role, whatever you're doing. That's a really good way to put it. I never thought about it that way. Like you just, you can't stand to not be moving somewhere or have some, you know, tool or process that you're working on and improving. Do you feel like you've always been like that? Or do you think that's a kind of mentality you've developed over time? No, I've always, I've always been told I'm moving too fast. As I was 15 and working at a front desk of a gym. And I told the gym owner he wasn't selling the right supplements and I wanted to get in there and sell different supplements and you know, he could charge me rent. And basically I would use all of his display cabinets and I would run the whole thing myself. That was my first business actually called infinity bodybuilding. And I've just, you know, he could, he used to always tell me you're, you're going too fast. You're trying to this, you know, why don't you just get used to training first? And, and I'm just, I don't know. I just wanted to go to the next thing. And it seems like a lot of people are intent on telling you slow down, but they don't actually have a good reason to them. It just feels too fast. There are reasons you need to slow down, but it's not because it feels too fast. It's because there's a reason there's a risk there's a possible breaking point. And I think people are uncomfortable with speed. But once you get comfortable with it and you realize it's just a different feel, it's not a bad feel, it's just a different feel, you could do a lot more. And so what's cool is too, what we're building, the speed isn't affecting all the same person except for me and him. But like when we're iterating on our bookkeeping, it's not affecting the foundries. And we're iterating the foundries, it's not affecting the media companies. So like we're iterating fast at all of them and they only feel their portion of it. So it feels fast to us, to them, they're all getting incremental pieces of it. But yeah, I think I've always been that way. I think the first time I was able to unleash it was with my father. He basically, after about a two year kind of getting used to the business, pretty much took the reins off and said, all right, do whatever you want. And he started traveling about six months a year. He, from there, I mean, we went from about 3 million to, we got up to 10 domestically, another one down in Mexico, sold that off and sold those. And so that was fun. That was kind of where I, and then that was less that I did. So now with Reg, we're going to take it and go to the next level. And we always say, I mean, constantly when we do our quarterly reviews, it's, you know, people will probably wonder, I wonder what the secret is. How are they doing it? It's literally the same stuff. We always say, build something, optimize it, hire somebody to run it, go build the next thing, optimize it, hire somebody to run it. We're just doing it every two weeks instead of every you know year. Where do you, you mentioned there's areas where impatience is a bad thing. Where do you feel like you need to be patient? Family, <laughs> stuff outside of work, personal relationships and realizing that everybody's mind is moving like mine. And again, I, I have, my mind has a lot of bad parts, but speed is so, somewhere that it does well. Memory is somewhere it does horrible. I always say I have a processing mind, not a, not a memory mind. I think the people side is probably where I've had to grow the most at GameCast. 
went from working with six people that were all very similar to me. We just, you know, basically crushed it at chess group and, and had a great time to being with, you know, 65 people spread across four different divisions that no one probably thinks like me. And some people wanted to, some hate the way I think some people have, you know, their own approaches. They have 30 years of experience. And now all of a sudden it's like, how do I get this whole train moving in the same direction? And I think that's been my big thing is, okay, that's where you slow down. That's where you have more meaningful conversations. They're not fact-based. Not everything's objective. Tap into what they're doing, what they want to build, what's their vision for their role and their plant. And not just listening and then walking away saying, I got, I got buy-in, but listening and saying, okay, how do I use this now to help their role, their plant, and what we're trying to build? And so this whole thing about people development, leadership development, getting feedback, giving feedback, spending more time with one-on-ones is something that does not come naturally to me. I don't, I don't ever need a one-on-one. Like I'm fine. I'm just going to keep going. But there are people that really, really need and want those one-on-ones. They want that time to unload their mind. They want that time to connect, to feel important, to feel seen, all that stuff. And so for me, and Reg has been saying it too for the last year, that that is the biggest area that I need growth. And so yeah, that, that's where my challenge has been to slow down, spend time with people at all the plants and just see what I can learn from them that maybe isn't operations, but I can learn other things from them. Any particular moment where you realize that's really the thing you need to work on? Like did any one-on-one or meeting go particularly, you know, maybe not the well, not as well as you hoped it would go? You know, there's a, there's a guy up in New Hampshire that I had a hard time connecting with. And I wouldn't say this is the answer to your question, but there's that guy's on my mind of trying to figure out how to get him to understand that I'm literally trying to help him grow his plant, make more money, you know, not have to work as hard with his machines because they're in poor shape. I could think of somebody in headquarters that I avoided for quite a while. And then I can think of a couple of times where I got a text, right, from one of them that, that said, I have seen a lot of people own this foundry over the last 15 years. I've been hesitant to get involved, but I see what you and Eric are doing. And now I want you to know that I started really kind of getting bought in about three weeks ago. And as of today, I am 100% bought in and I'm, I'm full bore with you guys. That's an awesome thing to hear from a guy that wouldn't even return your calls, wouldn't give you the time of day, couldn't figure him out. To all of a sudden him say, like, I didn't trust anybody, but I trust you guys and I'm in and let's do this. We've had, you know, meetings where you can kind of see the glow in everybody's eyes. Like they get it. They get what you're building. And you're like, okay, finally, these guys get it. They might not know all the steps and, you know, know what to do, but I can tell they just got a little more excited about their jobs because they see that they're some part of something bigger. So I think those are the wins and not having those wins is where I know I'm doing something wrong. If people aren't, aren't as excited as me, then I'm not conveying it right because what we're building is amazing. If you're, if you're in manufacturing and you dig it, and these guys do, they've been, you know, doing molding a lot of them or founded their whole life. They should love what we're building. We're literally going to be building one of the, I think the best companies to work for in the rough, you know, materials manufacturing space. And so, yeah, that's what tells me that I'm not doing my job right. And I'm not because there's still people that don't, aren't excited. There's still people that don't get it. There's people that don't want to develop. There'll always be some, but there's still too many, I think. And that means that I'm not spending enough time sharing what we're building, sharing the updates, showing them the opportunities and like the promotions that are happening at other plants. Yeah, that seems to be the a super high leverage tool and skill to learn over time because it seems like ev- it seems like the end state of most CEO roles is just managing your executive team and people management. You 
you remove yourself from the day-to-day processes, the operational improvements, even M&A to a great extent. And eventually like the, the end state, for, at least from what I've seen is, you know, managing executive teams. Do you feel like that's the end state for you or do you feel like you have a different kind of end goal in mind or end role and set of responsibilities? I don't know if it's end state. It'll always be a large part of my job. It has become a large part and will remain a large part. I know it's probably the biggest, like I said, it's the biggest spot I've changed. It's probably, if you asked me a year ago and now my view of all these different areas of business, this is the one that's changed the most. I realized, once you realize that it's hard to hire, because, okay, let me put it this way. In tech, there's a lot of people you can hire that are interested in the space, that have the tech skills, right? Software engineers galore. And a lot of them, because they're software engineers, think correctly. They know when they write code that you don't want to write the same method 27 times. You abstract it into one general method, and then you pull that method and you do it, right? So there's all these principles like abstraction that that these engineers know. So you don't have a hard time with key simple things constantly when you're building a software company, for example. In the foundry space, this isn't true. Most of these guys need to be able to make decisions on the floor. They should be empowered. And they need to be able to problem solve when a casting isn't right before we make 400 of them. They should know within four or five that they're wrong. And they either have been disempowered to make that call. They've been belittled and so they opted out. Or they've never been given the framework or tools for simple problem solving and decision making. And, and so what was happening was I was getting called into every single problem. I mean, multiple ones a day. This customer returned to shipment. What do we do? You know, uh, these parts are bad. What, what should we do? It's like, you know, you guys have been in this for 30 years. If you don't know what to do and you're calling me, who's been here for four months, we have a problem. And we did. So I started to realize the power of internally developing people. And this is, I don't know another way to say this, but that think kind of how we want them to think, which is using statistics, probability, probabilistic thinking, reason, logic, rational thought, right? Linear process excluding bad things, focusing on good things, lowering risk, long-term return on capital, not just total cash, like all these things where there's an upside and a downside. And so what we thought was, I got all this thinking from somewhere. I wasn't natural here. I've read business books. I've taken math courses. What if we find the best of the best, pull them out, read them with them. And now because we're all reading the same thing and discussing it, we start to all get ahas together. And now instead of me getting drawn into everything, we slowly over time create an organization that all thinks the same thing, has a shared language, has a shared problem solving methodology. So when somebody says, oh, you know, make sure that you do X, Y, and Z, everybody knows what they mean by that because we've all gone through the same kind of thinking. We've all read the same book, so to speak. We're all talking the same language. And so I thought personal development, leadership development was kind of bogus before. But now that we have 60 people and it's like, man, what if everybody could kind of think at least in these key areas, like not everywhere. We want to, we want diversity. We want diversity of thought and approach, but there are some key areas where it'd be nice if we all just approach it the same way. And so that's what the leadership development program is. It's, it's helping with key decision-making, problem-making, understanding financials. Like that's a key thing everybody should know. And a few other things that I posted out there. But so yeah, I think people development is huge because I want to hire and promote in, from inside our org. That's always going to be better than pulling somebody outside that has no experience with how we're doing things. So we just need to get everybody there so that they are promotable, right? Documenting the process, giving them the tools that they need, helping them getting ready to level up, like all that stuff. And so I think for me, I went from not believing in 
people development to being like, this is huge. Because if we do this, we don't have to hire you know, outside people. We can build an organization that can compound knowledge faster. We're all doing the same thing without having to remind each other. We don't waste time. Uh, it just becomes an unstoppable snowball, I think. Yeah, speaking of change and learning how to get on the same page with everybody, what's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? I just told you, man, people development is <laughs> is the thing. I, like that has gone from... I don't have time for that to that is the most important thing I need to figure out even to outsource teams. How do we make them feel more part of the team? Cause they are part of the team. How do they not feel like outsource teams, but members of our team? How do we develop them? How do we help them up their skill so that we can do more with them and they can do more with us just across the board. If I can develop people, they can develop the technicals and the tacticals and all the stuff needed to get the businesses going. It's like the ultimate me- meta system is developing great people that can then go do great things. Would you say then then that Amazon is the best business you've ever seen and ter- just because of the all the different ways that you've learned from them, perhaps? Yeah, I, I think I like a lot about them. I, I, I don't know. I'm like <laughs> negatively reacting to best business I've seen. I don't love a lot of things that they do, but I think that they do have a pretty core ethos that I probably agree with. Any others that maybe not like best business, but like what practices or models or customer service like, products? Yeah. What do you, what do you, um, who do you I like admire? Danaher, the Rails Brothers. That's a really good one. I like Amazon and Rebuild is interesting. Actually, Rebuild is an ex Amazon exec who, who went out and is now kind of using some of the Amazon approaches to rebuild manufacturing as well. I'd say those are the ones, the key ones that I really like in at their model. Yeah, I mentioned. I, I remember asking you about Hadrian, and you brought a rebuild. What's kind of the key difference between those two in, in your mind? Well, Hadrian is is specifically building machine shops at this point. Hyper optimized factories is what they call them, and I love a lot of the stuff they're doing. They're going after a massive market. They're going after specifically aerospace. They're going after scale, and so. My beef with it is the way that they talk about it, they're the end-all, fix-all to all manufacturing. But there is a large number of small mid-manufacturing that will always be needed across the U.S. There are industrial air conditioning units. There are parts of airplanes. There are parts of almost everything you see in your daily life that are not made in the millions or even hundreds of thousands. They're made in the hundreds. They're made in the ten thousands. Think about special parts of hospital HVACs, right? You're not making 10,000 hospital HVACs a year. And so there's always going to be this need for small to mid-level volume, which means you have to figure out a way to be profitable without scale. And that is something that is that is the number one problem we struggle with at Canecast and that we talk about all the time. If we need scale to make something work, we don't we don't use that method. We, we got to figure out another way because our goal is to be profitable without scale. Not a prototype shop, but not have to be, you know, a lot of foundries, what they do, almost all of them that have been successful so far have bought them all, moved them into one building, you know, cut the fixed overhead and basically whatever. We're building a network of foundries and we're very specific with that word. We're building a network of foundries where we can shift risk, we can shift capacity, we can shift knowledge. We can basically use all the upsides of the network uh, setup and structure. And so, yeah, I, I think that that's where we differ from Hadrian. But Hadrian's hitting another part of the market that is definitely needed, and that is, you know, scale, volume, machine parts, precision parts specifically. That that there's a, a huge issue for. I was in that space for for ten years, and yes, lead times for those parts can go twenty six weeks. They can go to up to a year. And so, 
you know, that was actually the role I filled. I sold it differently, a cheaper way. I would order the parts ahead of time and store them in my warehouse so that the aerospace companies could have access to them within a day. But there's a lot of holding costs and risk there. And so they're solving it in a much grander, in a much grander way. You mentioned that it won't be foundries forever. What do you think is that next area of manufacturing that is a good fit for what you're trying to do next? You know, we, we I don't know. We haven't, we've, we've joked around a little bit about it. I honestly don't know. I know every foundry is going to need a captive machine shop. That would be the easiest one. Machine shops also have horrible economics, so it's not the most desirable one. We'll probably have to do a lot more market research into what the next vertical is. Gotcha. I always love love chatting and wish these these could be three hours, but we can't, unfortunately. So I'll I'll let you go here. But thanks for doing this. I realized you hadn't been on the podcast before, even though I've (laughs) visited you and your family and you made an awesome egg sandwich and a whole bunch of other things. So, oh um, yeah, no worries, man. You're welcome back anytime. Yeah, I definitely want to go back soon. So, until then, we'll we'll chat soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Put In Strong, Overly Risk Strategies, More Staffing, and Oakborn Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.